The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, a podcast produced by RepublicEN.org. I'm Chelsea Henderson, Director of Editorial Content for Republic EN, and I'm so psyched that you've tuned in for another episode. Thank you. My dream is to become your must-listen, that podcast that you wake up Tuesday morning eager to hit the start button on. My other dream is to get 100 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, so please make my dreams come true, especially since I can't travel right now, which is my real dream. Anyway, I would be happy with 100 five-star reviews. You can rate us, write a one-line review, and if that one-line review is good, our producer, Price Atkinson, will read it on the air. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. C. Lindsay Linsky, the author of Keep It Good, Understanding Creation Care Through Parables, described as, quote, a landmark read for every Christian, end quote. A teacher by trade, she earned her PhD in science education in 2012 and now focuses her scholarship on environmental education and creation care. Lindsay is a passionate writer, speaker, and advocate for creation care, especially helping eco-hesitant Christians understand the environment from a biblical, biblical perspective. Lindsay lives in Georgia with her husband and two children. Before we turn to Lindsay, though, I wanted to highlight a piece of rather discouraging news. I just read that the Government Accountability Office, which is the nonpartisan investigative arm of the federal government, found that the Trump administration set a rock bottom price about seven times lower previous government calculations on the harmful impacts of greenhouse gas emissions. And they basically did this to enable the government to justify repealing or weakening dozens of climate change regulations. At RepublicEn.org, we have a term for people who take action that is counterproductive, and that is climate gesture. And we totally think this is a climate gesture action. So if you've been listening to these podcasts or you're a member of the EcoRight community, you know that we aren't huge fans of regulation, that our favorite approach to climate change action is to implement a revenue-neutral border-adjustable carbon tax. But we can't have nothing on the books, so until we build the momentum for a carbon tax or some related free market mechanism, the regulations are the fallback position, frankly. And if you would rather see nothing on the books for climate mitigation, at the very least, we have a costly problem on our hands that folks need to admit. Step one is admitting that problem, right, toward finding a climate resolution. And to set a rock bottom price on the damages caused by climate change is to ignore the potentially devastating impacts that it's going to um, have on us over the next several years or until we get to that point where we're reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. So that's my climate gesture for the week. I'm happy to hear your thoughts. And if you want to read more, the report can be found on the GAO website. That's www.gao.gov. And I always write a show notes pod, uh, show notes blog post on the day that this podcast airs. So you can go to our website, republicen.org, if you want any links to anything that we mention in our episodes. And also, if for today's 
um, blog post, I will include a good article about this GAO finding in the New York Times. And listen, don't at me. My dad is a former journalist, and he never worked at the New York Times, but still, I have a great deal of respect for their reporting. And I'm really in a headspace where I find the demonizing of journalists to be a despicable, despicable practice. But anyway, I digress. Go read about the lowering of the social cost of carbon, and uh, let's spark a conversation. And now, our executive director, Bob Inglis, with an idea worth sharing. You know, some people see a contest between faith and science, see them as opposed. I can understand that, but that's, that's not my view. As I see it, us and God and science is sort of like my wife and I watching one of our five kids start to walk. It's a big celebration. You take pictures of it, you film it. Come on, you can take another step. That's us and God and science. He's telling us, come on, I'll show you how. I'll show you how I did it. And you can stop the replication of cancer. Come on, I'll show you. So it's not a contest between faith and science. Faith is actually affirmed by science. Because we know from Romans chapter 1 that Paul says that what may be known about God is clear from the creation itself. Maybe it's a thought worth sharing. Welcome back, listeners. I'm so happy to be joined in conversation today with Lindsay Linsky and also with our very own Bob Inglis. And this is our first attempt at co-hosting a multiple person episode. And also, it's my first time interviewing or speaking to somebody I've never met. So I'm super happy to meet you now, Lindsay. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having me. To God be the glory. So, Lindsay, I was reading up about you, and I actually listened to an episode you did on the EEN, the Evangelical Environmental Network podcast, so that I could get to know you a little bit better first. And I was really struck that you said um, you were called to action to write this book while you were in grad school and and that it was a way to use your education and your experience to write this book on creation care. And I just thought it might be good for our listeners to hear about that epiphany moment, what that was like for you. Yeah, I would love to share that. Um, So I was driving home from grad school and I was listening to E.O. Wilson's The Future of Life on audiobook. And um, I had no plans to write a book, not even the slightest. I actually did not like writing at all in high school and (laughs) college. I had no plans to write a book. And then I just got this out of the blue epiphany that um, as I was listening to the last chapter uh, of what I call the house analogy that became, that inspired the book and became the first parable. And um, so it's, so it's the story of so many of our lives. It was just the image of a home and a family and the and you know, children and pets and a yard and the whole nine whole nine yards. And um, you know, the I was thinking and the parents, of course, the children are the most essential aspects of that home. The I mean, they are irreplaceable. They are absolutely essential to the parents' hearts. But that isn't the only thing that the parents care about. They take the dog to the vet. They feed the cat. They pay the bills. They, you know, mow the lawn and, and on and on. And they teach their children to do the same. 
you know, because a home will not stay a healthy, happy place to be if, you know, if they don't teach their children to do that, if they don't teach them to care for the things that they you know, have in the home and also use resources sparingly. Oh my goodness, I'm thinking about quarantine. How many of us in recent days have said, go easy on the toilet paper? You know, there's other <laughs> people that live here because, like, I mean, that's, it's, and creation care is honestly as simple as that. It's, it's basically just helping, helping people do unto God's creation as you would want done unto your own. And so, yeah, keep it good is an attempt to, help with that and help the eco-hesitant Christians kind of connect the dots between their faith and, you know, creation care and overcome some, some misconceptions that are going on in the church. Well, I really relate to that whole analogy about teaching children. I have a, a recent graduate from high school, so he graduated in time of quarantine. It was all done virtually and He's chomping at the bit to go to college in four weeks. And so far, things are open. Campus is open. And I'm feeling really at this crush point of, did I teach him enough to live on his own? <laughs> so, so, yeah, and especially during this quarantine time, we've seen I when the stay-at-home orders first were, were issued, I felt this urge to start growing vegetables and making sure that we were not wasting any food. I mean, we all saw the lines and the shortages. I'd never seen a shortage in a grocery store before. And that's my privilege speaking for sure, but I'd never been in a store where they were literally just shelves that were empty. And mm. so I think that this period taught us all a lot about that, about conserving and, and figuring out what is most valuable. And, and in the end, you know, was it sort of stressful to all be stuck home together? It was, but... I got to spend five months of almost uninterrupted time with my son who's about to leave for who knows how long. So that's so good. Now, Bob, I know that you have, you were so moved by Lindsay's book and you just have spoken to us. Lindsay talks to us multiple times. We have these calls a couple times a week and he's brought your name up so many times. (laughs) And I just want to give him the floor for a minute to talk about what he found moving. Well, you know, Lindsay and I met in April of 2018 in Alabama at a Christian Coalition event. Lindsay came up to me afterwards. It was frankly an underperforming event. There weren't many, there weren't enough people there. Um, and so uh, afterwards, the best thing that happened at that event was Lindsay approached me and said, I want to give you my book. And I must confess that I get a lot of books uh, as I travel around, and I sort of stuck it in my book bag and thought, I don't know about whether I want to read the book. But I had some time on the plane. I opened it up, and I started reading it, and I read the whole thing um, because I was just captivated by the parable format of of, – in that first parable, I think it's the first one, Lindsay, is the one about the house. And the it's just such a great way to tell the story of parents, you know, providing for their children, um, working hard on the house and, uh, you know, in the yard and, and making it a, a pleasant place to live. And then something happens and maybe you can tell us what happens. And it's just a great way to tell the story, I think. So, um but tell them what happens with, with the, when, they, when the parents go away. Okay, yes. Yeah, so oh, the- no. Do I really want to hear this? 
is, you know, the family, but the children are just that, children. And in the second parable, the um, children have grown into teenagers, and the parents go on a business trip, and the children throw this big party. And it's addressing this one, the, one of the main misconceptions um, in the church, which is God gave us all things for our enjoyment. And so some take that to mean, oh, well, then we can just enjoy it as much as we want. And I've heard that on TV, major cable news people using that as, you know, as a valid thing, they say. But, um, you know, it's just like this. It's just like the house analogy. And then the second parable, the party where, OK, so, yeah, the children are clearly enjoying all of these things that their parents worked so hard to provide for them. But they're trashing the place and they're destroying it. And it's not OK, you know, basically. So, yeah, that was the second parable. Yeah. So it's like and, we're having and, a big party on the earth with all our greenhouse gas emissions and <laughs> basically, yeah, they I think they yeah, left the door open and so the thermostat went up too high and everything else. So, yeah, there's there's several different uh, several different analogies for for different issues, environmental issues in that one. So. Yeah, the thing I think is so powerful about that is the it's just such a violation of the love the parents have given to the children and the trust that they gave them as they went away for the weekend or whatever. And then, of course, the uh, thankfully, and the way you tell it, is the, the children come to realize what they've done wrong. In other words, that there is a, there's repentance there because there's a, it's mostly just a violation of the love. Right. And right. that's what makes it so meaningful. And so it's so seems to me so apt for the love that the Creator has shown to us and given us this incredible place to live. You know, as you think of astronauts often report that you, you, you fly into space and you look around and there's only one blue dot mm -hmm. where we know we could live. Right. Um, and... I've, I've heard uh, what I was on science committee I used to hear and uh, really pay attention when the astronauts would say that because it was, it was a common experience for them. It's just looking back on this incredible blue blue dot. And so just what an incredible thing that uh, the creator would love us enough to give us that. And then the tragedy of spurning the love, of trashing the place, of... Uh, it's just, it really, uh, it drives you to repentance and a realization that, okay, now let's see what we can do now. We can, and the hope of redemption, right? That's what, uh, that's what you also provide there. Right, right. Yeah. And like you mentioned about the, the love of the creator and, you know, having these mentalities like uh, we can just enjoy creation as much as we want. Or another one is God gave Adam and Eve dominion. So that means we can just do whatever we want, which is a misinterpretation. And then there, I think the third biggest one that I've heard for creation care in general, there's a whole nother list for climate change. But the third is, um, you know, scripture says we're going to get a new heaven and a new earth someday. And so some say that this one doesn't matter. And that does. It goes totally against God's character of self-control and putting others first. And so, yeah, that's that's something I believe in very strongly as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's that, that character thing is the proper way, seems to me, to understand that word dominion, because um, you know, the word is there in Genesis that God gave uh, 
us humans dominion over the earth. But then the question is, um, what does that dominion look like? Um, and what I've, I remember in college reading uh, all through the entire Old Testament um, and uh, New Testament the next semester, because I took Old Testament and New Testament, um, and uh, being struck by how it is that the Trinity is sort of falling all over themselves to defer to one another. It's sort of a tumble through time and space. No, after you. No, after you. And then you get over to Jesus's example. And what does dominion look like for Jesus? Well, he's washing the disciples' feet. Um, the lowest slave in the house would do that. Right. And so he says, you got to be the servant of all. So if that's what dominion looks like, well, right. it's, it's a servant's dominion. And yes. it's, it, it's not a use it up, burn it up, rape and pillage the earth. To, to, to heck with my neighbors and what their lungs are like and what I can trash their streams and rivers. I know what it looks like. Right. 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 And there's scripture after scripture that says, you know, the creation isn't ours. It's God's. And, you know, he's basically the owner and CEO and we're the managers, if you will, or the caretakers. And, um, you know, if we are, you know, the king and queens of creation, are we more like you know, say for you to use a Robin Hood example, are we more like Prince John, the greedy Prince John, taking and just like only thinking of himself, or are we more like King Richard that everybody adored and was doing the right thing for everyone? So, so yeah, there is there is a lot a lot there. I was just putting this in the context too of the coronavirus and do no harm. What you said about do no harm, and mm. this reluctance to wear masks that some people are exhibiting. And I just keep thinking, but it's to protect other people. And how can you just regard disregard the folks you run into at the grocery store or at the Lowe's or wherever you happen to be? You don't know where they're coming from. You don't know what their vulnerabilities are. And I just saw someone say, man, they should have just told people that they're wearing the masks to protect themselves. And then maybe people would have done it. And I thought, God, what a selfish perspective right. to have. But right, we are supposed to wear these masks to help other people. And so it is, you know, there are some parallels, I think, between COVID-19 and climate change and what we're seeing about the science and reluctance to act and stuff. And it, I'm finding those parallels very interesting. Very Yes, I agree. Very interesting. So you use this term eco-hesitant that I have to say I really love because we refer to ourselves as the eco-right. So we've got that eco um, um I don't remember what the grammatical name is for something you put at the beginning of a word. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm an English person too. Um, but you have that prefix, prefix, I got it. You have that prefix eco. And sometimes Bob and the team and I, we struggle with how to refer to people who aren't with us yet, right? And and so we've used hoaxers before, but not everyone is saying climate change is a hoax, especially these days the um, the language has evolved. The language of denial has evolved. And um, we don't really like the word skeptic because, as Bob will often say, part of being a scientist is being a skeptic. You have to prove your science. You don't just get to believe your science. And so I really like eco-hesitant. I think that's just got a nice ring to it. And I can sort of see it on the spectrum where you start off eco-hesitant and then you make some steps and you eventually find yourself in the eco-right. 
I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, that, that, that term, I, I like it because, you know, it comes from a place of love and respect, you know, because I'm surrounded by it. But, you know, these are my friends and family at church and everywhere. And so, you know, I, you know, using terms that can be considered either judgmental or um, finger pointing or blaming that that's never that never changes hearts that never that doesn't um you know i feel like it can also honestly be counterproductive and and so i try to you know in writing keep it good and and also in speaking and working with people in creation care i i do try to you know approach them from that type of eco hesitant perspective where um you know they're just misinformed you know cuz honestly i was thinking about um you know, if you think about people, if they are serious Christians and they're holding on to these misconceptions that we've been talking to about creation, and, you know, then if they don't believe that God cares about what we do in creation, then why in the world should they change their ways? Why should they, you know, go, why, why would they bother changing what they eat or what they drive or, you know, and all of the, all the other things, you know, they'll, they, they won't, they'll just say, you know, whatever chicken little, you leave us alone. And, and so I, yeah, I do think that, that approaching from a more loving perspective instead of finger pointing and blame, you know, is the, is a better way to go. And, and Lindsay, why, why are they eco hesitant? Honestly, I believe because they are misinformed. Like I said, there's a, there's whole mega churches that you know are taught that you know this this heaven and this earth doesn't matter, or this earth, excuse me, doesn't matter. And so that you know it, that's honestly is if you're if you really believe that, then that can that can cause you to stumble over some of these other things that scientists are trying to communicate. Um, so. Well, I think that we need to start using this word, Bob, in our own um, op-eds and all our website and writings, because I do think that, that, Lindsay, what you said about when you come at somebody from a position, like we, we try hard, and I know Bob, especially when he's on the road and he encounters people with varying levels of disbelief about the science or an, um, an unacceptance of the science, I guess we could say, and when you come off and you say, and Bob knows this all too well, you, you try to say, well, you're wrong. Well, then Bob's an elitist for trying to, you know, tell him, this person a different thing. Or if you call somebody a denier or a skeptic, it does have a negative connotation, whereas that hesitant word is just sort of, it's a little more polite is the wrong word, but it's just a little softer, right? You're accepting that there could be an evolution and that maybe somebody could find their path and find their way without being forced or told they're wrong or insulted along the way. Right. Absolutely. And coupled with that, I do think that the um, parable format is helpful because, you know, it kind of takes people on a mental flight simulator and um, takes them out of their own shoes and hopefully sees things from a different perspective. So where and how are you spreading your message? Do you, you talked about your church and your community. Are you, I mean, back in the days when you could travel, were you taking your book and your message on the road or trying to find different venues to speak at? Are you, how are you actively seeking out these eco-hesitant folks? Well, um, I have 
you know, I've done a couple of different things. Definitely at my church, I spoke with the college group. You know, that's a lot of times, um, you know, especially with our more eco-hesitant churches here in the Bible Belt, they um, are a little bit more reserved and cautious uh, for about for the main uh, the main campus, but um, but talking with pastors one on one, and then also working with the um, the college groups has been has been a great opportunity for me. And then um, speaking at different, I spoke at an eco theology conference on a panel at, at Columbia University or Columbia Theological Theological Seminary, very different place. So um, so yeah, I've been trying my best to, but honestly, it's not not my day job, so I don't. Um, right? No, I know. Don't we wish we? I wish you had all the time in the world to make this your day job. <laughs> and Lindsay, why is it do you think that those those college kids, college believers um, who are younger, are more open? Why do you think that is? Less they're they're less eco hesitant, right? Yes. Yes, you know they um, were they're in a generation that that has learned the science very frequently and um, knows the scientific. Even if they haven't totally adopted it personally themselves, they learn the science in school and they have more of a foundation. And that's honestly really key. Because, um, and I think that's where a lot of our communication runs up against a brick wall. Because when you know, I'm a science teacher, you know, and my PhD is in science education, and you can't teach somebody something that they're not ready for. Like, for example, you can't um, teach someone, you know, someone can't analyze poetry if they don't have literacy skills. You can't learn algebra if they don't have, you know, basic math. And, and you know, honestly, the same goes for climate change. If they're holding on to these misconceptions that are foundational to their lives and the way that they conduct their lives and then they're not ready to receive that um and so yet for that reason and bob knows uh, i very purposefully and strategically don't talk about climate change in keep it good i i I believe this is sort of a prerequisite to to that conversation so so have, have those young christians been taught or have they been brainwashed Um, which is often the often the uh accusation (laughs) right that's often the accusation made against uh climate educators right is it actually they brainwash these kids yes and you know uh i i hear some of that especially recently there have been quite a few things on tv about um about teachers and you know having taught in public school you know my you know, I, I guess I'm biased in that way, but you know, they, they stick to the standards, and you know, their hearts are definitely in the right place. So I, I don't subscribe to the brainwashing, you know, thing. <laughs> I mean, my yeah. older son just had AP environmental science, and he said basically the whole curriculum was about climate climate change. Right. Yeah. And you know, honestly, uh, I I worry about um, nihilism with um, especially with that. You know, if you have a good foundation of you know, a lot of really great, because that's, that's honestly what has been proven to work in, in environmental education. It's not the science, it's experiences in wild nature as a child. It's um, things where you can physically see that you're making a difference, like um, citizen science. Um, those, those types of things are really what spur on environmental action as an adult you know, because I've heard of people taking or a study where they surveyed students before and after an AP environmental science class, and they did uh, they had fewer environmental behaviors on, on the opposite side than they did in the beginning because the nihilism just sets in. So, 
So I'm not sure if that was your son's experience or not. Hopefully not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know that we use that personal experience that people have in the environment um, quite frequently, right? So we hear stories from people who say, well, the ice hole that I used to go ice fishing in with my grandfather, that lake no longer freezes over in the winter, so we can't carry on this family tradition. And um, I think it is important to make sure we're getting our kids out and in the environment and seeing what their impacts are. And and this still ties back to the coronavirus and the way some of the cities really saw a reduction in pollution when we were all staying at home. And I know some of that is ticking back up as folks are phasing back to their jobs and so forth. But I believe it was in India where there was a part of India. They had never seen the Himalayas because of the pollution cover. And then after coronavirus, they were like, wow, there they are. So all over the world, people were seeing like when we take that step back and we slow down, here's what it looks like. So maybe as we get back to work and we're moving forward, we need to do it in a better way. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I noticed a difference in the air quality in my house for sure. And Lynn, Lindsay, you had some formative experiences not far from where I live uh, at a camp, right? You, you, you spent that's that's where you had those prerequisites for noticing God's creation, right? Yes, they they did not. It was um, uh, the Green River Preserve. Yes, that's where I fell in love with nature, and um, that's what made me want to become a science teacher. And you know, just climbing up mountains, and every day we would go on these hikes with these naturalists and stand under waterfalls and turn over rocks and all the wonderful things that you know, just wonder of God's creation. And so it's. And, and why did you think that you saw that as exciting and not a contest to faith? You know, sometimes people see science as a con- in contest with faith. Oh. But apparently you see it uh, differently as sort of science affirming faith or being, being a, a playing out of faith. For sure. It, science only amplifies my faith. Honestly, it's like a megaphone because I see, you know, I once, um, I follow two people I really respect on Twitter named Sigart and Sarah Salivander. I think I'm saying her name right. And um, I asked both of them once, is there anything in science? Well, first of all, I should say that uh, Sai is a, um, uh, I can't remember what area of science he's in, but he's published like I think 200 different scientific papers, and I know Sarah's an astrophysicist, and they're both very active and open about their faith and, and um, faith in Jesus. And I asked, like, is there anything in science that you think points away from God? And they were adamantly both saying, no, absolutely not. And I, I agree. I agree. Science, to me, only amplifies my faith and my wonder in all things that he has done, everything he's done. Well, that's really beautiful. I just want to remind our listeners that if they have not read it or if they missed in the intro that the book that Lindsay wrote that we've been talking about is Keep It Good, Understanding Creation Care Through Parables. She's very, very kindly offered some free downloads over the next week. If you're listening and you're interested in hearing more, then just email me at Chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at republicen.org, and we'll be sure to hook you up. And, Lindsay, it was just so great to talk to you today. I don't know if Bob has any final thoughts he wants to extract from you, but I want to let you get on with your day and um, continue to 
find your ways to touch the eco-hesitant. Yeah. Well, it just says, Lindsay, thank you for writing the book and for uh, uh, really doing it in such a, a neat way uh, to to um, make it not, like you say, about specifically about climate change. It's really about just being aware of a loving creator who gave us the gift of an incredible blue dot on which we can live. And what is our response to that? Right. And that's that's the... That's what I take as the essence of the book, and um, so it's it's a really all, a book all about love, and um, that's pretty exciting. I like to I like to say that it's a non-depressing environmental book. <laughs> yes, exactly, and that's what we really need, especially in coronavirus times. Something about hope of redemption, right? Because uh, you know, uh, uh, guilt without redemption brings paralysis. Right. Um, and so if we have the hope of redemption, then there's, we can live, we can celebrate life. Otherwise, it's just all depressing all the time. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, thank you for writing it in that kind of way that it's, it's an exciting opportunity, really. Yeah, yeah. And I really am hopeful that, um, that we're going to turn things around. The church as a whole is going to turn things around very, very quickly. You know, I think about the Pope and the, the work that he is doing. And I think about, I think I have a historical analysis of Christianity written by Phyllis Tickle that, you know, every 500 years, we kind of work things out and fix our problems and, and that are going on in the church. And I, I think cre creation care is going to be one of them this go around. Well, thank you so much for your time and for sharing with us. And we look forward to future conversations with you for sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. So Price, I just loved my and Bob's conversation with Lindsay Linsky. I just walked away from that discussion with a smile on my face the rest of the day. Bob was Bob was incredibly inquisitive. You know, Bob was drilling down. I thought Bob, uh, you know, you dropped uh, some journalism and New York Times and some other things in there. I felt like Bob was almost going full blown reporter because he asked some, you know, really specific questions uh, uh, of Lindsay. And I wasn't really sure how that was going to work because he's used to being the one who's interviewed. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I asked, he had read her book and I had not. So I knew he had that advantage. And I really was sort of prepared to still be the one to drive the conversation, but it was all him. And I just kind of sat back and listened and I felt so much warmth from Lindsay and so much earnest earnestness and just a desire to see her message spread and to resonate with people of faith. And so just a reminder to our listeners, if you are interested in downloading a free copy of her book, Keep It Good, let us know. She is offered for a week to let people who are interested have a free download. So a week from air date. So you have until July 28th or something like that. I don't do math well. I think it's July 28th or 29th to get your request in and we will get that download to you. Yeah, that's uh, incredibly generous of her. And so, yeah, definitely let us know if you would um, if you would like to, to download that free copy of her book. And, you know, part of it is, uh, you know, it's using stories about 
familial struggles and successes, teenage escapades, tragic mistakes, historical figures, and updated versions of literary pieces. Keep It Good will open your eyes to how Christians are missing the mark when it comes to God's creation and provide practical suggestions for how to get there. Um, so yeah, that w- that was a great conversation, and you know something you said too in the opening segment about uh, your dream of, of 100 reviews, Chelsea, uh, of the podcast. It is a dream of mine as well. I want to read one real quick that we got uh, since last week. Uh, oh, I just had it right in front of me. Of course, it would disappear. Uh, this one uh, says, "Good stuff. How delightful that this exists." I look forward to tuning in every week, and I uh, appreciate everybody that does tune in. But if you would like to write one of the hopeful. Uh, 100 reviews. I think we would need about oh 60 some odd at this point, Chels. Which we could we can do it. We just got to start our push right now. Uh, when you sign up or download Apple Podcast, um, iTunes, you can just you know hit the number of stars. You can write that review right there, and it makes it easier for others to find the podcast, Chels. So I like your goal of 100. You know, these days where we're our wings are clipped, we're not traveling, we can't have our best friends over for dinner. I just need something to dream about. So I decided that having a hundred reviews on Apple podcasts was going to be my dream. So one thing that you said in the very, I, it was during the interview with Lindsay, um, is that, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, journalism and that your dad was a journalist. And I said, hmm, yeah. you know, oftentimes we, we think we know our coworkers until we don't really know them. And, you know, my family is, got a deep history in journalism. When you said your dad was uh, a journalist himself, I perked up. I was like, hmm, we need to have this conversation, whether it be on or off the podcast. But I was uh, I was intrigued, Chelsea. What, what is that background? I would love to know. Well, so my father, Bruce Henderson, he is an author of several nonfiction books, which you should go check out. Um, he kind of writes the consummate Father's Day gift kind of books. They're usually about war, a lot of World War II books, Vietnam War book. Um, His most recent one was called The Ritchie Boys, and it was about a troop of U.S. soldiers who were Jewish, who had immigrated to America before we got in the war. And they were mostly young kids and teenagers when they came here. And then when they were old enough, they enlisted and went back to fight Hitler, who had basically driven them out of their home countries. And a lot of them ended up in intelligence and doing interrogations and so forth because they knew the language and they knew the culture. And so that was a really interesting read. But before he was an author, he was a journalist. So when I was growing up, I, I re- the, the first story I remember is when he was trying to make it, right? He told my mom they were a young married couple without a lot of money and I was a baby. And he told my mom he really, it was his dream And so he sold a freelance article and I think it was sports related or maybe it was Metro section related to like a super small newspaper in the California Bay area. And they paid him 75 bucks for the piece, which a lot of places don't pay today. So I have to feel like I would be pretty psyched if someone gave me 75 bucks for a piece I wrote right now. They gave him 75 bucks. He went to the bank. He got it all cashed in singles. And then he went home and like threw the money up in the air and said to my mom, see, I told you I could make it as a writer. And then she realized they were all ones. But anyway, I love that story. And so he's had some amazing experiences. He 
actually one of the funnier jobs that he had was for the National Enquirer, like in the 70s. And it might have just been that he was freelancing for them, too. But the story I remember was that he got the assignment to prove that I think it was Ben Franklin or one of the founding fathers had forged all of the signatures on the the Declaration of Independence. And the premise was that it would have been too dangerous for all those guys to be in the same room and sign it, which I don't even think they were. I thought that maybe it passed around and people signed it. But anyway, he they told him to call this one handwriting. He was calling handwriting analysts and they kept saying, oh, no, no, like that this there's one one handwriting expert who's trying to push the story and none of us agree with her or him. And so he went back to his editor and said, yeah, I can't get anyone to back up the story. And the editor said, offer the next person 500 bucks. And my dad said, nope, can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the end of his career at the National Enquirer. But he, since then, he worked at the, you know, he did a lot of um, magazine, freelance magazine articles and stuff. He started writing his books in the 80s. So that was when he made the transition. But definitely my younger years, he was full-on investigative journalist. Wow. So my mother was a longtime uh, reporter and columnist with the Greenville News, passed away literally in the paper in uh, in 2002 out of the blue, uh, gave her life to that newspaper. But, you know, some people ask me, um, give, give me one fact that, you know, I don't know about you. And I, I, I like, it's not about me, uh, but my great great grandfather was the very first president of the White House Correspondents Association. Wow. William W. Price, who was a reporter back then for the Washington, uh, well, it was the Washington Star, but it was the Washington Evening Star. You remember when they had, you know, morning and evening newspapers. And so, um, you know, back when, was it 1914 was when it officially, um, you know, began as the White House Correspondents Association when uh, President Wilson in 1913, he threatened to do away with uh, news conferences because he got real ticked off that the evening newspapers were misquoting um, him and other you know folks around the administration. And so uh, that's when they, you know, a bunch of reporters, including my great great grandfather, went went to work and said, "We can't. This can't happen. We have got to." You know the checks and balances of a free press, and so therein began the uh, the White House Correspondents Association. And so uh, William W. Price, you can go look it up online. I promise you, I am not putting you on, but yeah, journalism is, uh, and then obviously what you and I do today, um, and this what we're doing right now is a is a form of, of new journalism. You know, some might people might call it, it radio, is. but you know, podcasting is a you know certainly a new. A way to consume your news and media, Chell. So, uh, so very cool. The ties that bind. The ties that bind. And I should just note, because I wasn't prepared to talk about my dad, but I got the title of his last book wrong. And he, if you're listening, Dad, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it is about the Ritchie boys, but that is not the name of the book. It is Sons and Soldiers, the untold story of the Jews who escaped the Nazis and returned to the with the U.S. Army to fight Hitler. So that was the most recent book. You should definitely check it out, Price. I might even have an extra copy around here somewhere. And um, another book that I just really loved of his mm-hmm. um, is called Hero Found, The Greatest POW Escape of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And so this is about a friend of his who was the longest, or the, the POW who escaped, maybe it was like the longest held who managed to escape 
is the the claim to fame. John McCain, I think, was the longest held. But um, this was somebody who served on my dad's um, aircraft carrier mm. in the Vietnam War. And he never knew him, but he had already been captured at the time my dad was stationed on the ship. But he just had heard, you know, everyone knew about the story. And then when they when he escaped and they they had him back years later, my dad struck <clears> up a friendship with him. And initially they were going to write it together, the book. And the publishers didn't want it. They were like, oh, nobody wants to read about Vietnam. It's too depressing. Write a World War II book. So my dad paused and went and wrote another World War II book and came, decided he was kind of getting his ducks in a row to do this again. And his friend ended up getting Lou Gehrig's disease, um, the one who had been the POW. And he took his own life, which just to me shows that if you can, if you can survive being a POW and the things he went through and then you have to take your own life that that just must be a horribly wrenching disease. And now we've taken a turn in this podcast. I'm so sorry, listeners to go down that road, but anyway, fantastic. Um, like I said, the, the consummate father's day books. And I almost went to journalism school for graduate school. I had toured a couple and was getting the applications together. And then my heart took me to Europe instead. And I followed a boy and Mm. then I, Never ended up getting back into journalism, but as you mentioned, I found my roundabout way to being involved in the news. So I've come full circle. (laughs) Well, let's come full circle right now, Chelsea, and give a shout out to some of our new Republicans uh, for the week. Uh, Since last week, shout out to uh, Aditya Madali from Hoffman Estates, Illinois, James Dow from Del Mar, New York, Vicki Langford from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Deborah Dickerson from Sandpoint, Idaho, and lastly, Andrew Phelps from Middleton, Wisconsin. Thanks to all of you and those even that I didn't name uh, who signed up uh, to stand with us. And you know, as we mentioned, you can do that right there on our website at Republican.org. But Chelsea, well, yay! Yep. I love, I love, I love new members of the community, and I don't know if there's a way for one to tell us whether they found us through the podcast or not. But that would be really exciting to me to think that this podcast is reaching um, new members of the Eco Right community. No doubt about it. Uh, we're going to reach the Eco Right community next week. Chelsea, what is on tap? Okay, so I know that. Last week, I teased you all and said that I was going to bring you somebody famous. And then we had Lindsay Linsky. We're going to make her famous, but she might not be a household name. So I'm still price working at the scheduling. This person was on vacation this week. It may happen next week or we may have somebody else. So we'll just have to wait and see. Please tune in to find out. Tease, tease, tease. All right, uh, Chelsea, uh, great work this week. Excited to do this again next week. If you missed any of our previous episodes of the podcast, you can certainly go find the EcoRight Speaks on your favorite podcast platform. Give some of our earlier episodes uh, a listen, subscribe, and again, we would love a review. But until next time, Chelsea, we'll see you then. All right, see you then. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.